This episode was first posted April 3rd, 2012, and this movie is another one of my faves. This is Movies for the Blind, episode 207, Timetable, part one of two. And patience is fine for a guy like Joe. It goes with his two-pants suit, his washable necktie, and his 49 car. For me, patience is poison. Welcome to Movies for the Blind, where you can enjoy films without looking at a screen. I'm Valerie Hunter. You know I like making a point of noting people in films who come from Canada, which is where this podcast is produced. But I seldom get the chance to mention when someone's from my birthplace, which is Cleveland, Ohio. So here's my chance. Mark Stevens was born there, and oddly enough, he lived for a time in Canada, but went back to Cleveland and made a name for himself on stage at the Cleveland Playhouse. When he took a shot at Hollywood, the big studio system straightened his hair, colored it from red to black, and bleached his freckles. He did okay in the studio system in the 40s, nothing spectacular. But in the 50s, he started to find more opportunities in independent films and television, some of those opportunities behind the camera. Along with acting, he became a TV producer, a music publisher, and a director. He was given the chance to direct and star in a film called Cry Vengeance in 1954. And a couple years later, he did the double duty again, but this time as producer, too. In the last episode, I'd said he'd acted, directed, produced, and wrote this film, but that isn't true. He didn't write it. Clearly, he felt like being lazy. From 1956, this is Timetable. Out of darkness, the headlight of a train appears and grows larger, illuminating the curve of the tracks. Then it speeds by. Timetable. Starring Mark Stevens. Featuring King Calder and Felicia Farr. With Marianne Stewart, Wesley Addy, Alan Reed, Rodolfo Hoyos, Jack Klugman, John Marley. On the train, a conductor and a porter pause to let a couple pass before continuing to make their way down a corridor. Original story by Robert Angus. Screenplay by Abin Kandel. Music composed and directed by Walter Scharf. Director of photography, Charles Van Inger. Production manager, Doc Merriman. Film editor, Kenneth Crane. Sound, Robert Roderick. Camera operator, Ray Flynn. Story editor and dialogue director, Stanley Silverman. Assistant director, Louis Germanprey. Associate producer, Edward L. Rissian. Directed by Mark Stevens. Reaching a door with the porter, the conductor knocks. Come in. A white-haired man remains seated. Dr. Sloan? Yes? I'm sorry to disturb you, sir, but it's urgent. What's wrong? There's a sick man in drawing room B, and his wife's half out of her mind. I wonder if you take a look at him, sir. What does he complain of? I don't know, sir, but he sure sounds bad, and I'd appreciate it if you'd... All right, I'll be with you in a minute. He stands, reaching for his jacket. You are a medical doctor, aren't you, sir? I'm afraid so. He puts it on. There are times when I wish I were a veterinarian. Later, as the train rolls through the night, the conductor and porter wait with a blonde woman. A door opens, and Sloane steps out. Well, doctor, what is it? He'll be all right. Can I go to him now? 
Yes, maybe you'd better stay with him. I'll be right back and give him something to relieve the pain. Thank you. She goes into the compartment he'd left. Is it serious, doctor? Symptoms point to polio. Polio? Unless we work fast, we may be in for a lot of complications. But what can we do? We must get him to a hospital as soon as possible. What's the next stop? A Phoenix, sir, 4 a.m. Sloan checks his watch. Three and a half hours. Uh, too far, too late. No, I can't take that much of a chance. Well, sir, I don't... Wait a minute. We go through Winston, don't we? Yes, sir. When? In about an hour, but we don't stop there. Well, we will tonight. There's a hospital in Winston, small but well-equipped. All right. Now, here's what has to be done. Notify the engineer and then wire ahead to the station master at Winston to have an ambulance meet the train. We've got to work fast. Above all, stay calm. Keep this to ourselves. Is it contagious, sir? Yes, this car will have to be quarantined until I get him off at Winston. And then you must seal up the compartment. No one need know anything about it. What cars are ahead of this one? The baggage car. Well, that simplifies things. Porter, I want you to stay in the car behind this and make absolutely sure that no one enters or leaves this one. Is that clear? Yes, sir. Get on it right away. The porter leaves. We're getting close to Desert Junction. I better get that wire ready for the dispatcher. There's one more thing. I'm going to need a hypodermic and some drugs from my suitcase. It's been checked through. You'll have to let me into the baggage car first. Of course. Follow me. Thank you. Soon after, at the door to the baggage car, the conductor presses a button. A smaller door behind bars opens. Hiya, Bill. What's up? This is Dr. Sloan. A passenger took sick suddenly. He needs some medicine from his suitcase, okay? The smaller door closes and the larger one opens. Thank you. The conductor leaves as Sloan enters the car. And the door is closed behind him by a man who turns to another. This gentleman's a doctor, Eddie. Yeah? There's a guy sticking back. Get the doc's bag and make it snappy. You got a baggage check? Oh, yes. Yes. Sloan finds a ticket in his jacket. Here it is. Eddie takes it and steps away. This guy bad off? He'll be all right. Yeah? What's wrong with him? I'm not sure. The first man glances at a third. Sometimes they eat too much. When the train rolls at night. Hurry up, will you? Okay, okay. Put it right up here, please. Take it easy. There's glass in there. Eddie sets a dark case on a table. Is that okay? Yes, thank you. That's fine. Eddie steps away as Sloan unlocks the case. Opening it, he reaches inside. Got what you need, Doc? Sloan points a pistol. Put up your hands, please. The first man stops putting a cigarette in his mouth. Ah! Dropping the smoke, he raises his hands, as does the second man and Eddie. Unbuckle your gun belt. The first man, the only one armed, obeys. Drop it. He tosses it in front of him. Now move over to the door. Lay on the floor, face on. Hurry up. Reluctantly, the three men bend to the floor and lie face down. Put your hands behind your back. They do. From under his jacket, Sloan pulls out a small case, which he unzips with his teeth. He steps toward the men, opening the case to reveal three syringes. He takes them out and kneels to the men setting two on a box. He pulls up the plunger of the other with his mouth 
and injects one. What the? Shut up! Oh, easy, Eddie. He's got a gun. Quiet. Sloan picks up another syringe and does the same to another man. Pocketing that one. He pulls the plunger on the third as the first man looks over his shoulder. Stay there. He injects him in the back. Sloan pockets that syringe and stands, backing away. Eddie struggles to his hands and knees, but collapses. Sloan puts the gun in his pocket and checks his watch, then picks up the syringe case. Opening the larger case again, he takes out latex gloves and puts them on. takes out a couple small cones strung on a wire and kneels down to a safe, attaching one cone to a hinge of the safe door. He attaches another to the combination dial, wrapping wire around it. He extends wire out from the safe and pulls down a blanket he uses to cover the safe. He lowers the case to the floor. Kneeling behind a trunk between him and the safe, he connects the wire to something on the side of the case. He checks his watch. Another train approaches in the other direction and passes. As it does, Sloan turns a switch and a small explosion blows the blanket off the safe and opens its door. Sloan slides the case over to it and takes out a satchel. He starts transferring bags from the safe to the case, leaving one bag. He takes off and stashes the gloves and shuts the case, locking it. He picks it up with the satchel. Later, the porter picks up the case with others as the ailing man is taken on a gurney. They head up the corridor. From the compartment of the stopped train, a woman watches the blonde woman wait at an open ambulance as Sloan and the conductor supervise the gurney being lifted into the ambulance. The woman watches intently as the blonde climbs in, and Sloan follows. The porter loads the cases. and the ambulance door is closed. A station master watches the ambulance pull away and steps to another man outside the small, dimly lit station. A sign above a door under a light reads, Winston, population 2075. Later, a woman in bed sits up and turns to a man in the next bed. Smiling, she turns her legs over the side and pulls a blanket up to the man's chin. Trying to do smother me. He pulls him down. Sorry, darling. I thought it would help you sleep. I'm too excited. She kneels at his bedside. Yeah, me too. He gets a pack of cigarettes. What time is it? You don't have to whisper. <laughs> I always whisper in the dark. Is it time to get up? No, it's too early. Go back to bed. Oh, I'll sleep on the plane. Dear realize, Mr. Norman, by this time tomorrow we'll be in Mexico City. He lights a smoke. 
I know how you feel. Oh, it'll be wonderful. Mexico City, Taxco, Puebla. Sosh. Sosh. Sashimilko. <laughs> okay. So you pronounce it better than I do. Easy, Sashimilko. That's where the streets are paved with flowers. And they use boats for taxis. You know that Mexican song you brought home yesterday? I can't get it out of my mind. Salute Felicidad Amor. Means health, happiness, and love. If you got those and money, you're not entitled to gripe. We have them, darling. Yep. But not in the right proportions. What we lack in money, I'll make up in the love department. She kisses him. He answers a bedside phone. Hello, Norman speaking. What? In 15 minutes, but... He hangs up. Who was it? Hendricks. Hendricks? He turns on a lamp and sits up. He'll be over in 15 minutes. Why? What's happened? I don't know, but it's not a social call. Well, didn't he tell you? No, he didn't say. Well, he must have told you something. He didn't tell me anything. We'll know when he gets here. He stands and walks off. Soon after, in the kitchen... Until they reached Phoenix at 4 a.m., they didn't even know anything was wrong. They couldn't get in the baggage car. They had to bust their way in. Some more coffee, Mr. Hendricks? Oh, thanks. Don't mind if I do. That's when they found him, unconscious. Safe blown wide open. How much did they get, Sam? Everything but the silver. A half a million. $500,000 in small notes. Well, I guess that about covers it. Let's get out to the airport. Now, wait a minute. You've ruined my vacation. At least let me finish my coffee. Oh, I'm sorry about this. <laughs> we did count on this vacation. Charlie's been tired lately and edgy. I know, I know. I've set all your plans. But this calls for top handling. What about Jackson? Not enough experience. Nadia? Jerry Klein? Rogers? A phony accident claims, routine investigation, yes. But for this... I guess I'm it. Now, look, Charlie, this is our biggest policy. We're out on a limb for half a million. You retrieve it, and maybe the company will buy your Mexican holiday. Who's coming for the railroad? Joe Armstrong. He's going on ahead to Phoenix. He's a friend of yours, isn't he? He usually has Sunday dinner with us. Every once in a while, we run after the same fires. Good. And you work as a team. He checks his watch. Come on, come on, we're late. I'll be right with you. The men stand, and Hendricks leaves the kitchen. Pulling on his jacket, Charlie notices his wife's sad expression. Baby, I'm sorry I blew up at you. I know how much the vacation meant to you. To me, too. It's only postponed. We'll get there. Sure we will. They kiss. Take care. Charlie leaves her at the kitchen table. Later, in Phoenix, trains crawl through a freight yard. In the baggage car... Yeah, I'll check it. A marshal steps away from an older man writing in a notebook. Charlie approaches him. Delighted, Joe. Can't you remember anything? What you write down, you can see. Joe puts the book away. What you see, you can remember. How are you, Charlie? Okay. I'm sleepy. You'll wake up. Yeah, if I save the company half a million bucks, I get a week in Mexico in the house. <laughs> You're lucky. All I get is polish from a badge. How's it? She's okay. They step around the safe, which is being analyzed. Hi, Charlie. Hello, Pete. Your baby? Yep. How do you like the look of it? Yeah, that's how we found it. The photographer takes a picture. Neat job. Yeah, technique and precision. Real pro. Blew her open like a penny balloon. Liquid nitro? No. What did they use? Shape charge? Yeah. 
That's a new one. Shape charge, the stuff the Army's been fooling around with. That's it. How's it work? Well, in simple terms, it's an explosive molded into the shape of a cone so that the force of the explosion is directed. Like a blowtorch. Oh, I get it. In other words, they just blew out that hinge in the lock, eh? But, uh, how'd they set it off? Well, either an electric battery or a detonator. We found pieces of wire. Charlie steps to where the men had laid. What's this? Muster, probably. It's just a bed pad. We'll know more when we get it down to the lab. Uh-huh. Joe joins him where outlines are drawn. Yeah, that's where they found them. Dead to the world. We're ready with the witnesses. You want to question them now? Oh, sure. Where are they? In the other car. Okay, Charlie. Let's go. Their interviews start with the porter. Well, I knew he was a doctor on account of the telegram. The first man. Well, I, I guess he just looked like anybody. You know, kind of uh, average. The second man. Just like a sting. All of a sudden, here. The back of the neck. Eddie. If you had a baggage check, I, I found a suitcase right away. The conductor. Yes, sir. I am positive she was a blonde. A blonde. That tells us a lot. A man brings Joe an envelope, which he opens and takes out a document. Anything? Nothing. No prints, nothing. He hands it to Charlie, who also reads. Brand new bed pad, never been washed. You can buy those in any store. Wires, just wires. Dime store stuff. Everything wiped clean. Well, they don't seem to have overlooked a thing. There's got to be something. There always is. Sure. You know where to look for it. Winston, let's check on that ambulance. They step away. Later, a police car pulls up beside another in a country parking lot. Joe and Charlie get out, and a marshal gets out from behind the wheel. They walk toward the Winston Sheriff's Office. Inside. The ambulance men were playing cards, you know, just killing time. About 12.30, these two guys come in armed. Mm -hmm. They work fast and quiet. Up with your hands and turn to the wall. Then they conk some on the head. Uh, Petey, send Bill out to get some cold lemonade, will you? Right, Jack. Like a well-rehearsed troop of actors, they thought of everything. No chance of a slip-up. The wire came, they had the ambulance, and they were ready. Wasn't that a long shot? Couldn't the station master have called direct to the hospital for an ambulance? Well, it wouldn't have made any difference, Joe. I checked. There isn't another ambulance within 65 miles of here. Yeah. Someone masterminded this pretty carefully. They case this town inside or not. Maybe we can get a lead that way. Well, I doubt it. There are too many tourists in Winston this time of the year. They all ask questions. A couple more nosing around wouldn't cause much of a stir. How about the missing ambulance? Not so much as a nibble so far. Every department in the state's looking for it. Got roadblocks, posses... Even got a helicopter from Phoenix. They wouldn't get very far with an ambulance on the main highway. That's right, they couldn't. They would attract too much attention. That's what I told them. I said they wouldn't go far in that ambulance. They'd ditch it and ditch it close. I'll bet it's not far from town. It'll show up. It better. There isn't much else we can do until it does. There sure is. What? We can eat. <laughs> See you, Jack. So long. They leave the office. Later at night, in another office, Charlie slams a cabinet door. What's the matter with you? Joe writes at a desk. Nerves, I guess. Take it easy, kid. 
We haven't even started yet. Ben? Charlie shakes his head. So Joe puts down a bag of them and picks one out. Let's hold for hours and haven't figured an escape hatch yet. Here's something to occupy your mind. Listen to this. He reads. Porter delivers wire to compartment B, 9.50 p.m. Woman calls conductor, 12.30 a.m. Wire dispatched to Winston, 12.55 a.m. In Winston, 12.30 a.m. Ambulance men knocked out. Sometime between 12.30 a.m. and 1.30, robbery occurs. Train pulls into Winston, 1.40. Ambulance waiting. Two men enter. 1.50 a.m., ambulance drives off. It's open. Train pulls out. They walk through bar doors. Reads like a freight dispatcher's timetable. Everything in place, no loose ends, no leads so far. Sounds like the beginning of a perfect crime. Must have been something to watch. Save your admiration, Charlie. I've been a cop for a long time. I've seen some good jobs and bad jobs, but I've never seen a perfect one. Well, that's always a first time, Joe. No, no, there's no such thing as a perfect crime. Just a lucky one. But their luck will run out. Well, it's not going to run out tonight. I think I'll go back to the hotel and call Ruth, tell her I'm going to be stuck here for a while. Okay. In the morning, a man serves coffee to Joe at a coffee shop counter. Make that wheat toast. Right. Be with you in a minute. Wheat toast and two coffees, Jimmy. As Joe sips the coffee, Charlie enters and sits beside him. Coffee? No. Wait a minute. Checking the ambulance reports as they came in. And? A highway patrol helicopter spotted 20 miles out of town. I told you. The first break. Maybe the luck's beginning to run out. All right. Finish the coffee. Let's get out there. He stands, lighting a cigarette. Brother, what a good night's sleep can do. Joe follows. Later, a line of police cars drives along the bottom of a hill, led by motorcycles. Soon after, Charlie and Joe step away from the ambulance while it's examined. Look, Joe, we're wasting time. Well, maybe they slipped. They've been too careful. Let's forget about the ambulance and find out where they went. I've been trying to find out. It's not where they went that's bothering me, it's how. One thing's for sure, they didn't drive. Well, how do you know? The ground, it's too dry. Dry as powder. No other tracks, just the ambulance. Yeah, but how? Charlie looks up. Maybe there's your answer, Joe. A helicopter slowly flies over the hill toward them. At night, a car's headlights find a sign. Riverside Farmers Co-op, keep out. Charlie and an officer approach the gate it's on. We got the copter over in the field. Going toward the voice, they join police surrounding a helicopter being examined. Anything? A man turns from the cockpit. Blood, and plenty of it. See what I mean, Charlie? The luck's beginning to run out. Considering, Charlie steps away. Later through headquarters. Why is it so much hotter here in Riverside than L.A.? Charlie watches Joe right at the desk. What do you make of the blood? Don't know. Nobody was hurt in the robbery. Maybe somebody was too greedy. Could have been an accident. Maybe. Joe sits down his glasses. But it doesn't matter either way. He needs a mint. What do you mean by that? It's only important who was hurt or how. The important thing is it wasn't on the timetable. And that's what's going to trap them, Charlie. Everything was too well-timed. No leeway. And if they went off schedule once... He crumples paper. Just once. And tosses it. Later, as Charlie crumples paper, an officer delivers more, which he reads while Joe dozes nearby. Charlie rolls his chair to him and nudges him. Joe, 
Oh, it's you. He sits up from a wooden bench. What? The CAA report. The copter belonged to a guy named Al Wolf. He runs a charter service in Burbank. Mm, Peter. I doubt it. What? He reported it missing four weeks ago. Oh. Well, let's go have a talk with him anyway. We may get something. Yeah. We stand. Free ride around the airport. They leave the homicide division. Later, at an airfield, someone in a jumpsuit labeled Wolf Charter Service works on a small plane as a car passes. It stops near the tail. And Joe and Charlie get out. They step toward a hangar. Hey, Mac. Hey. With no response, they turn toward the workmen and walk around the plane. Wolf around? Yeah, he's around. Will you get him for us? Yeah, sure. Hey, Wolfie! Yep! A stocky man approaches with a cup of coffee. Hi. And climbs on the wing. How many planes can I sell you guys? Joe shows his badge. We're checking on the guy who chartered your copter about four weeks ago. Oh, yeah. Well, it's like I told the CAA, uh, guy looked perfectly all right. He had a license, a legit reason, and cash, lots of cash. <laughs> he sips the coffee. How was I supposed to know he's a phony? You know, times ain't so good right now. Hundred buck a day jobs don't come along every day in the week. The reason he gave you, what was it? He said he was flying up to Nevada. Something to do with uranium. He was just going to look over a claim, I think, he said. And you believed him? Oh, look, buddy, I told you, he had a lot of cash, paid me for six days. He could have said he was going to the moon. <laughs> Remember what he looked like? Sure, sure, he was a nice-looking guy. Uh, very pleasant personality. That all you can remember? Well, he was a big guy, and uh, like I said, a very pleasant personality. <laughs> Who'd have thought he was a phony? Thank you very much, Mr. Wolf. We'll be in touch with you. Hey, but uh, what about my copter? Sorry, but we'll have to hang on to it for a while. It's been impounded as evidence, but we'll get it back to you as soon as possible. Look, I need it now. I can rent it to a movie company. They're making a flying picture. I'm time to make a western. Joe and Charlie step away. Later in Charlie's kitchen. Oh, you sure you don't want to lie down for a while, honey? You look beat. Well, I've already told you I've got work to do. If I lie down, it piles up. I'll get buried under it. But it can wait for an hour, can't it? Darling, you shouldn't drive yourself like this. It isn't worth it. You've just got to relax. Got to relax. Let me rub your forehead. Let me get your slippers. Ruthie, what do you know about this? Why don't you just leave me alone? He gets up from the table and turns away. You mustn't fly off like that. He turns to her. All right, so I won't fly off. You won't make anything happen sooner by beating yourself. You know what Joe says. You've just got to have patience. Yeah, I know what Joe says. And patience is fine for a guy like Joe. It goes with his two-pants suit, his washable necktie, and his 49 car. For me, patience is poison. Charlie, can't I help? He steps toward Ruth, but averts his gaze. What could you do? You've never tested me, Charlie. Well, let's not begin now. He grabs the phone. Hello? I'll be down in a half hour. He hangs up. I'm sorry, baby. I gotta go. He does, quickly. Charlie! Later, 
The blonde woman, now brunette, pulls a gun when she spots someone in a mirror. She turns and faces Charlie. What went wrong? What happened? Who got hurt? Charlie, please. Which one? Lumbar. How? His own gun tripped getting in the plane. Stupid when... fool, the getaway was timed. Moving fast, Charlie. It was an accident. An accident. He looks down and takes the gun. I'll take that back. Now, we don't want any more accidents. What was he carrying a gun for? All he had to do was play sick and lie on a stretcher. He had an idea that... I had a timetable. He turns away. For months, I studied the east and the westbound trains. I, I rode the coaches like a candy butcher. I memorized the baggage car. I studied the crew movements, the compartment layout. I rehearsed every move with you and Paul over and over and over. What could we do? We had to stay with Lombard. We couldn't just let him die. You wouldn't have wanted that, would you? She holds his arm. Would you, Charlie? No, of course not. He turns to her. How bad is he? Not good. Let me have it straight while Lombard pulled through. Well, Paul keeps telling us... Paul taking care of him now? Yes, he's doing everything he can. Paul's still a good doctor, Charlie, as good as when I married him. He hasn't had a drink in four days. He better not. Where are they? In Chatsworth. Wolf took us to a place Wolf. he has. You're full of surprises, aren't you? Wolf's part in the job was over when he landed that helicopter. I told Paul to pay everyone off and split up. Oh, he had to go somewhere. So Wolf steps into the picture. Wolf doesn't know about you. He still thinks Paul's landed. I still don't like it. Now the Wolf knows we all run a risk. What else could we do? Why did you switch the schedule? You were supposed to be in Mexico City. What are you doing here? You're the mastermind. Shut up, Linda. You had every minute ticked off for each of us. If you'd followed your own timetable, you'd have been there. I'm telling you to shut up. Well, why didn't you leave? Why didn't you carry out your end? I couldn't, you little fool. I couldn't. You mean you wouldn't? You thought Paul and I double-crossed you, didn't you? Didn't you? He slaps her. I'm on the case, Linda. The company assigned me to recover the money. I could roll with that one. I thought you were in Mexico City, but when I called the hotel from Winston, you weren't there either. I nearly went out of my mind. I didn't know what had gone wrong. All I knew is I had to get them back to L.A. if I had to lead them here by the hand. We found the plane, the blood. They embrace, and he fervently kisses her face. I nearly went crazy. Whose blood? Which one? It could have been yours. Frightened. There's nothing to be frightened of. What I know I can handle. Are you sure? I'm positive. There's nothing to be frightened of. Aren't you ever afraid? Why should I be? My job is to catch myself. From here on, I control everything. I know what they're looking for. I can stop them from finding it. Sometimes you scare me. There's nothing to be frightened of, Linda. It just takes more time. That's what going off schedule means, more time. Till they run themselves ragged and give up. What about Paul? Maybe he won't want away. What does it matter what he wants? do what I tell him. He has the money. Tell him I want to see him tomorrow here with the money. Here? All right, Linda. There's nothing to be frightened of. Charlie. They kiss. Then they gaze at each other. I love you, Linda. They kiss again. In daytime... Charlie stands outside the bungalow, stepping on a cigarette butt and checking his watch. He steps through a back door, as he did the previous night. He turns off a nearby record player and closes it. As he approaches the front door, Sloan walks in. With a case, he closes the door. Take your time. I had to be careful. I wasn't sure this was a place. And I heard the music, little Linda's favorite song. Health, happiness. The money? 
Sloan hands him the case. So there. Charlie sets it down. The key. Yeah. Sloan hands him that. Very nice. Yours? No, it belongs to a friend of mine. What about Lombard? How is he? Dead. Your friend isn't an enemy of alcohol, is he? Lombard didn't have a chance. I did everything I could, Charlie, short of transfusions, wonder drugs, and prayer. I was a very good surgeon, you know, until... What about that drink, huh? Charlie steps past him to a bar, and Sloane follows, watching him open a liquor bottle. What'd you do with the body? Charlie pours. Wolf's getting rid of him. Don't worry, Charlie. He knows what he's doing. A very good amateur undertaker, Wolf. Very expensive, too. That was a funeral that wouldn't wait. He wanted Lombard Sheriff for doing the job. Did you give it to him? Sure, why not? What's fifteen thousand dollars? There's plenty to go around. He hands Sloan the drink. What about the Ammons boys? Pay them off too? Oh yes, first night. Sorry, a little country boy, not just as you planned. You did a great job, Paul. The only lead was the copter. I planned on that. Armstrong swallowed both story whole. Armstrong, railroad's prize cop, were a team. Oh yeah, Linda told me about that. Has great possibilities for a man with iron nerve. Poor wolf. If he knew who you really are, he swallowed you for a cop. Don't be too amused. I gotta be head and tail on the same coin. It means changing our plans. Our plans? I hardly see, Charlie, how your personal complications affect me. I was in this for one thing, the money. Now I've got it, and I intend to enjoy it. Just how are you thinking of doing that? Going to Mexico. Just like you planned. We won't go together, that's all. He smacks the glass from Flo's hand. How far do you think you'd get? You're a fool, Paul. Well, Charlie, I only meant to... I know what you meant. Don't even think of it. We lost our chance for a quick getaway. Lombard's bungling fixed that. It's too late now, do you understand? I could make it, Charlie. I know I could. Without anybody to give you orders? There'd be a cop every two feet. You couldn't slip a bag of popcorn past them. They'd pick you up in five minutes. They step away from the bar. What are we going to do? Charlie, what do you want us to do? Hold up and wait. We've got all the time in the world. When can we go? When I tell you and how I tell you. Paul, you're great. You're just great as long as you're following orders. But the next time you get an original idea, remember when we first ran into each other. You were trying to beat the company with a claim that any ten-year-old kid could have seen through. Yes, I, I remember, Charlie. You pulled me out of that hole. I suppose you can pull us out of this one. What's next? Get clear of Wolf's place and Wolf. Move into a motel. Don't spend more than one night. Keep moving south. Check with me every day. Let me know where you are. And wait. All right. Well, get started. Don't you want to count it? Sloan goes to the mirror to straighten his tie. I trust you, Paul. Sure you do. We trust each other. Charlie puts a cigarette in his mouth. As Sloan picks up a tube of lipstick from a table. I'll have to tell Linda to be more careful with her lipsticks. Or will you tell her? She said that she'd talk to you on the phone. 
He tosses the tube to Charlie. Wait a minute. Oh, by the way, Charlie, you wouldn't have liked her blonde. Very unexciting. Sloan leaves. At headquarters, Joe looks at notes on a blackboard. Matter, Joe, you run out of notebooks? What you can see, you can remember. My old man taught me this trick. What was he, a football coach? <laughs> no, just a crack-a-barrel philosopher and sheriff of Haynesburg, Missouri. When he was on a case, he'd write everything down on a blackboard. Ever solve anything that way? <laughs> Never missed one. He'd sit in front of it for hours, studying the cold facts. Joe starts writing. When they'd sunk in, he'd erase them. Then he'd start thinking about people. That's okay if you know who you're thinking about. But this isn't a case of who stole Farmer Brown's... He notices Joe writing doctor with a question mark. What's the doctor for? Nothing's turned up on any stolen medical supplies. No illegal drug sales. Anyway, that guy knew what he was doing when he came to giving a hypo. Just a possibility, that's all. Charlie nods. A lot of doctors in the country, Joe. Yeah, I know. You planning on checking all of them? If I have to. Behind Charlie, a sign says, there's no such thing as a perfect crime. What happens when you get to the end of that line? What about all the retired medics? And those that have been barred from practice? Look... We'll be checking a lot of things within the next few weeks. Most of it won't mean much, but every now and then something may jibe. When it does, we'll write it down. Keep your eye on that blackboard, Charlie. When we erase the facts, we've got our case. He underlines driver, Riverside. Later. I get it, Rosie. In his kitchen, Charlie answers the phone. Norman speaking. Oh, Charlie. Joe, can you meet me downtown, Lincoln Heights Station? Yeah, what for? I think we got the bum who drove the car from Riverside. Okay. He hangs up, smoking thoughtfully. Later at the station, many butts litter the floor of an interrogation room where a man sits nervously under a harsh light, and Charlie sits against a wall. He coolly sips from a cup and crumples it then tosses it. Charlie stands and turns to Joe. Give me a cigarette, will you, Joe? Joe complies. Thanks. And they approach the man. Let's try it again, Frankie. Oh, give me a break, will you? I drove a car, that's all. I didn't have anything to do with the robbery. I didn't even know there was a robbery until I read it in the papers. Stop picking long shots, Frankie. Your luck ran out. Joe steps to a door. He opens it. He's here. Okay. Then closes it and turns back to Frankie. It's true. You've got to believe me. Some guy came up to me. What guy? I don't know his name. Just a guy. Said he'd seen me hanging around L.A. looking for a hungry buck. Wanted to know if I'd like to make some quick dough. And you said sure. 
What else could I say? Hey, I was down to eating beans. All they wanted me to do was send a wire to some character on the train and then drive a car out to a field in Riverside. That's all. A perfectly honest job. I thought it was legitimate. What did he say he'd pay you? Huh? Dollar an hour? What did he pay you? $5,000. It's quite a day's pay. Go on. I did it. I was in that field when he told me to be. Could have knocked me over when that copter came in. They tell you what they'd been up to? No. Honest, they are. Honest, no. See, nobody said anything. All the way into San Badu. Nobody said nothing. Only this guy moaning and bleeding. Nobody said anything. It gave me the creeps. Come on, Frankie. That's a long drive. I just told you. Nobody said nothing. There was just this guy and... What was it, Frankie? What did you just remember? Well, was his dame, see? What about the dame? Well, this guy's moaning must have gotten on her nerves because she said a couple of things to one of the guys shut her up. What'd she say? I don't know. See, it sounded kind of foreign, like, uh, uh, Nam Breeze, or, uh, Nam, was Nam something. Nombre de Dios. How's that sound? Yeah, that's it. Anything else you can remember? No, nothing. That's all it was. See, I drove the car back to Sam, but dude, the guy paid me off, he told me to squint. Who paid you? Sheesh. I don't know. It was dark. I couldn't see anything. I hung around San Badu a couple of days, and then I got restless. See, I'm always getting restless moving around. Joe drops his cigarette and steps on it, then trades a glance with Charlie. He steps again to the door and opens it. Will you come in, please? Wolf walks in with an officer. Smoking, Wolf smiles and nods. Ever seen this man before, Frankie? Frankie stares at Wolf. Recognize him? Take your time. Frankie looks at Charlie, who looks at Joe, who looks at Frankie. Wolf glances down at Frankie, who turns away. No. Wolf sighs patiently, and Charlie sighs a little less. Is that all? That's all, Mr. Wolf. Thanks for coming down. Nodding, Wolf leaves. Then the officer taps Frankie's shoulder. Frankie gets up and leaves with him. So, we had a couple twists there. Are there more in store? Can Charlie pull off this juggling act and get away with Linda before Joe can figure everything out? Find out in the conclusion of Timetable, next time on Movies for the Blind. You may not have known of Mark Stevens before today, but I'll bet you knew two of the voices in that last scene pretty well. As Frankie, Jack Klugman, whose gruff voice would inhabit Oscar Madison in The Odd Couple and CSI pioneer Quincy on TV. And the man playing Wolf, Alan Reed, forever known as the voice of Fred Flintstone. You'll be hearing more from him next time, too. To find out more about the movies, about description, and how to subscribe, go to that blog, moviesfortheblind.com, where you can also find out about this podcast, Creative Commons License. The movies are from the Internet Archive, so please support universal access to human knowledge by visiting and donating at archive.org. Thank you for downloading and for listening. Be back next week. Take care. Take care.